Support for WERU also comes from Artisan Builders, providing environmental design, construction, and renovation for homeowners and local businesses since 1992. More information at 322-4647. This Saturday is the first day of WERU's February Pledge Drive, when we appeal to you, our loyal listeners, to share a little of your hard-earned cash with the radio station. It takes all of us to keep WERU going strong for the community, and together you annually give more than $250,000, over half of our budget. Thank you for supporting community radio and making WERU great. Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock Counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. The time is 4 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Wednesday, February 22, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. Public hearings are being held this week on Governor LePage's proposed 2018-2019 state budget, which would make dramatic cuts to several programs and services that serve some of Maine's most vulnerable populations. Hospitals, municipalities, social service programs, and clergy say they are stretched beyond their capacity to serve Mainers who fall through the holes that already exist in Maine safety nets, and they do not have the resources to deal with the consequences of the major cuts being proposed. The public hearings are drawing overflow crowds to the State House, as is the tradition at these things. The legislators and representatives of state agencies are allowed to speak first, and usually without time limits, whereas the public goes last and is kept to three minutes each. Yesterday, that resulted in some members of the public needing to leave at the end of the day without having a chance to give their testimony. Each day, DHHS Commissioner Mary Mayhew who incidentally has a salary of $127,000 a year as of 2015, has spoken at length in defense of the cuts to the programs, saying that they would motivate people to get jobs, would decrease state taxes, and would draw more jobs to the state. Today, the people had a chance to respond. Here's what some of them had to say. Senator Hamper, Representative Gatine, and members of the Appropriations and Financial Affairs Committee, Senator Brakey, Representative Hymanson, and members of the Joint Standing Committee on Health and Human Services. My name is Arinda Fogler. I am the Community Services Manager for the City of Bangor, and I administer the second largest general assistance program in Maine. What I would like to do today is to give you some sense of how these state uh, proposals impact general assistance at the local level. In Bangor and in municipalities across the state, GA is the social service of last resort. In 2016, Bangor provided over $2.2 million in assistance to 2,100 Bangor residents. Of this amount, 70% or roughly $1.55 million was reimbursed to the city by the state, leaving Bangor responsible for over $671,000. GA recipients come to us for a variety of reasons. In over 20 percent of the cases, physical and mental disabilities make working and care earning a living wage difficult, if not impossible. These adults are undergoing the arduous and lengthy process of applying for Social Security benefits. In the remaining cases, unexpected life circumstances such as a job loss or crushing medical expenses bring them to our door. Contrary to popular belief, most receive assistance for a relatively short period of time. Over the past five calendar years, 74% of Bangor's GA recipients have received benefits for five months or less. Eliminating state funding for GA will not erase extreme poverty. Individuals and families will continue to find themselves in situations where their only option is to turn to their community for help. The proposal to eliminate GA funding at the state level will simply shift the fiscal 
fiscal burden to municipalities. For Bangor, that means increasing our expenditures threefold, from under 700,000 per year to over 2.2 million, which represents an increase in the mill rate of 65 cents. This is not feasible for Bangor or any other community in Maine, and desperately needed services will be lost as a result. I'd like to give a couple of other examples of how changes in general assistance law directly impacts general assistance. In terms of lifetime limits on TNF, when it came that the lifetime limit was 60 months, we started seeing more and more families who had timed out of TANF and became became responsible or became necessary for them to come to general assistance. Um, in 2016, we saw 51 households that have timed out of TANF. That cost us about $126,000 in GA benefits. Clearly, if that is reduced to three years rather than five years, that number is going to increase for Bangor taxpayers. And finally, I'm going to give you an example um, regarding medications, and this is, is relative to disability determination. Before a number of people were removed from the main care roles, Bangor spent about $4,000 per month on prescription medications. When those people were removed from main care, their need for prescription medications didn't change. They became eligible for general assistance. They came to general assistance. The city of Bangor is now spending between fifteen dollars and $18,000 a month for prescription medications. So you can say it was a cost savings in main care, but clearly there was a huge shift in that cost to local municipalities. I thank you very much for your time. If you have any questions, I'd be more than happy to answer them. Questions, either committee or Sarah Parker? To the point that you said most people receiving help from mm -hmm. general assistance um, is temporary. Are you? Could you just expound on that a bit? Um, if that were to disappear for those people, do you think that they would move out of the need for assistance quicker, or do you think it would? No, what I'm saying is that there's a belief out there that people are on general assistance for a long period of time. And what I did before coming in here was I looked at five years of data just for Bangor, and 75% of our folks received assistance for six months or less, and 88% received it for a year or less. So what I take away from that is there's an urgent need. There's a job loss. There's some crushing medical expenses. There's a woman escaping a domestic violence situation. They need help for a short period of time to get back on their feet. The data just does not play out the belief that people are on it month after month, year after year. So my question is, if that assistant wasn't there, for those families in temporary need, do you feel that it would take them longer to bounce back? And this is hypothetical. You don't have a crystal ball. But mm -hmm. would it take them longer to bounce back? Or do you think they would be more empowered or motivated to get back? Without that emergency assistance, I don't know how they would bounce back. You know, if you lose your housing, you're going to become homeless, as a number of, of the members of the committee have mentioned. If that help isn't there on that emergency basis, you're going to find people in homelessness. Representative Deno? Just something I want to, we, we had asked this question, and, and I think you're being very helpful to us on this. It, it does appear from what you've stated that the elimination of Medicaid coverage, main care coverage, and the elimination of TANF has tended to drive an increase in a general assistance. Absolutely. Demand. Absolutely. So um, that, because we've been asking what happens to these people, you're, you're, you're living it. it Absolutely. Like I'm living it, and the citizens of Bangor are living it. Thank you. Representative Breen. I mean, Senator Breen. Thank you, <laughs> <Sorry>. Senator <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Do you see then when this cost gets shifted to your municipality, then it, it then gets picked up in property ta increased property tax revenue? Yes, that's the case. Would you be able to give us some data about that for the work session about how your budgeting has uh, and your mill rate has taken this uh, these trends that you're talking about mm -hmm. in the past? As you said, you have five years of data, mm -hmm. and then what you project yes. for property tax impact with some of these proposed changes. Absolutely. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Representative Hymanson. 
Hello. Hello. Um, the 51 Bangor households that reached the 10 of 60-month limit turned to a general assistance. Can you tell us a little bit about those 51 families? What's the usual, or is there? I would tell you that about 20% of those folks, there is a parent in the household who is applying for disability. Those tend to be our long-term people, and it's because the process of applying for disability is so lengthy. It's become compounded because these folks need that medical documentation in order to get the background information they need to apply for disability to earn their disability status. And because of their loss of main care, they're having a hard time finding providers to get the medical information that they need. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any others? Representative Dunham again? Uh, quickly, um, again, it's, it's great to have someone who's actually experiencing this rather than talking about theory. Uh, in your experience, your observation, is the existence of general assistance discouraging people from, from seeking employment and, and getting their own? Uh, I, I don't believe so because... All of the general assistance programs that I'm aware of, and, and I'm on the Maine Welfare Director's Board, and, and so I'm aware of many of them, we require our folks to register at the Career Center. We require our folks. General assistance you apply for on a 30-day basis. It's a 30-day eligibility period. And every 30 days when those folks come in, we are requiring them to provide proof of job search. We're requiring them to have gone to the Career Center to participate in programs like WIOA. So um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but. Thank you, Brenda. No other hands. Going once, going twice. There it is. All right, so, thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Senator Hamper, Representative Gatine, Senator Brakey, Representative Hymanson, members of the Joint Committee on Appropriations and Financial Affairs, and members of the Joint Committee on Health and Human Services. My name is Maria Hecker. I'm an ordained Episcopal priest, and I serve as the rector of St. Columbus Episcopal Church in Booth Bay Harbor. I share the following testimony on behalf of the Right Reverend Stephen T. Lane, the Episcopal Bishop of Maine. Bishop Lane intended to be here today, but due to illness, has asked me to represent testimony in his stead. As one, as you can see, one of many church leaders, both present and with us in prayer, we are leaders who take the example and teachings of, of all faiths to heart. I believe the moral measure of any budget is how the most needy among us, the least of these, fare in our society. I encourage you to resist passage of a budget which undermines the lives, dignity, and rights of vulnerable Mainers living in poverty, particularly this budget with its punitive cuts to anti-poverty programs which provide access to food, health care, and general assistance. Over the past five years, cuts to Maine Care, SNAP, and TANF have resulted in plunging poor children more deeply into poverty. Currently, the rate of children living in families with a household income of $10,000 or less for three people is eight times greater than the rest of the United States. These children are our future. For those new to our shores, those deeply invested in crafting for their families the American dream, a new and promising life among us, it often takes six months to obtain a permit to work for the federal government, from the federal government. General assistance for asylum seekers is a small, time-certain investment in those who enrich our communities with their hard work, our future labor Force. Welcoming the stranger is a strongly held value of all major religious people and religions. And as a church leader, I can attest that our congregations welcome partnerships with community organizations to share in offering and welcome and support. In the Booth Bay region, representatives from nonprofit charitable organizations, churches, schools, and state and local officials meet monthly to pool our resources, including funds for general assistance. Together as a team, we know our neighbors and we're able to connect 
connect and support them. We know who are falling in the cracks, who are falling through the cracks. We know them by name. Wherever resources utilized, there are so many more souls who are suffering in our midst. No problems we face in Maine are solved by the additional cuts called for in this budget. Rather, as proposed, it will fray the safety net for thousands of our neighbors and jeopardize the well-being, both now and in their future, of our youngest, most vulnerable citizens. When confronted with Jesus' words that the poor shall always be with us, the 20th century Catholic activist Dorothy Day replied, Yes, but we are not content that there should be so many of them. Nor am I. I will tell you that nonprofits are staggering as we work to gather enough resources, enough crumbs to care for our neighbors. You see behind you representatives from nine denominations or more, including all of us standing here before you. We are gathering in prayer today in a prayer vigil in the Hall of Flags as you deliberate the future of our state. As we seek, as you seek to serve all people in Maine, we pray for you that each of you are graced with wisdom and dignity and strength and compassion. Thank you for the opportunity to share our concerns with you today. I'm Rabbi Susan Carvudo, and I am the Rabbi Emerita of Temple Bethel and Augusta, uh, where I served for 16 years and have been retired since 2013. Uh, and I'm here with kind of two hats. One is my Rabbi hat, um, which uh, help, helps me to, allows me to, to quote the, the Talmud and the Torah and our Jewish text that, that tell us that providing health care is not just an obligation for parent and doctor, but for, society, for patient and doctor, but for society as well. Maimonides listed health care first on his list of the ten most important communal services that a city must offer its residents. And in Leviticus 19, it says, you shall not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. The other hat I'm wearing today is of a grandmother. Um, I'm a grandmother who has been, uh, I'm 70 years old, um, I'm on Social Security, and my only health care coverage is through Medicare. And I'm raising my grandson who just turned 17 and has been on main care uh, since I've had him. Reading over the a budget proposal, I learned that uh, one of the new provisions is to eliminate main care coverage for 19 and 20-year-olds. Um, my grandson loves Maine. He was born in Maine. He would like to stay in Maine. Um, he's able-bodied. Uh, but I want him to go, go to college, or at least community college, and I want him to be able to get a job. And if he doesn't have health care, he's going to have to leave Maine, whether he wants to or not. And I, I was very surprised and shocked to hear that that was part of the uh, new proposal. So please... Uh, Think about this as another way to uh, to strengthen our workshop force. We want our young people to stay in Maine, and uh, in order to stay in Maine, they need to have health coverage. So, thank you. Thank you. I was just hoping, Rabbi. It looks like there's about 30 people standing up there behind you. Could we get a list of the people who showed up today and the churches and organizations they represent? Thank you very much. Representative Parker. I would actually like to ask you, what I'm hearing is that you are here today as a collective group. Yes, we are. As we do no harm with unintended consequences. do no harm. Okay. I, I feel like so often the burden uh, gets shifted to the nonprofits, to the charitable organizations to pick up the slack. And we are struggling to find enough funding 
to do that work. Part of the reason we have nonprofits is to do the work that government can't do as well. But we need the partnership. We really need the partnership. Representative Jorgensen. Thank you very much. Nice to see so many community leaders here, many of you I, I recognize. Um, the question I have is really just along those same lines about how you as nonprofit organizations interface, if that's a good word to use, with the GA system. I mean, I, how does that partnership look? What I, people I can tell you about Booth Bay Harbor. We have the Booth Bay Region Community Resource Council, and in that we have hired a, a community navigator. So anyone who has any needs in the community are sent to the community navigator, a social worker, who knows all the resources that we bring to the table, including general assistance, including charitable funds from churches, school resources, the YMCA. We come to the table every month and create safety nets with our neighbors. And the general assistance is a vital part of that. Representatives from the towns are at the table. They know the stories. They know. Uh, and, and through that, we're able to um, help our neighbors. But we put a cap on it because there's so many. So everyone goes through an intake officer, and then and, you know maybe $800 a year is all they get. But that way we can spread it around. And so the general assistance is part of that funding structure that is a public-private cooperation. Well, Senator Cates, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I just want to take a moment to say hello to Rabbi Susan, our, our family's rabbi for 16 years. It's really nice to see you. Um, Representative Denholm. Yeah, just a uh, uh, question and comment. Uh, I think that the people in the room will be able to answer this, but my understanding working with the immigrant community was that the minimum amount of time uh, it takes to get a work permit is six months, and that it often takes over a year. So I, I, I would just hope other people who have experience will speak to that issue. The other question I have, I'm not asking you to speak for all nonprofits in Maine, but to the extent that the work that you folks collectively do uh, it is uh, relevant. Can you speak to will you will you as the nonprofit community and other partners in the nonprofit community be able to absorb all of these folks who are being proposed to be eliminated from general assistance from TANF, have their health care taken away? We're the ones that are going to have to stand by and hold their hands and not be able to help them. We're the ones that are going to have to pastor to these people who are underemployed. I mean, to assume that they don't want to work when there's jobs that aren't providing livable wages is scapegoating. And we hold their hands and pray with them. Hi there. Thanks for the collective. It's really impressive to see you, and I appreciate your coming. Um, I'm concerned about um, different towns have different amounts of resources, so that when um, resources are taken away from some wealthier towns, they may be able to support um, more. But other towns that don't have the resources really depend on, and they, their nonprofits can't step up the way some other towns. I wonder if there's somebody in this group who comes from a town that doesn't have a lot of resources and could speak to how um, fragile you feel about this. Um, if not, a, just a general comment about that. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Vanessa Winters. I'm an ordained pastor in the United Church of Christ, and I serve in Thomaston, Maine, which is precisely that town. Um, we, I was impressed to hear Booth Bay. I thought I would love that because our nonprofits are handing out a list of churches and saying, "Go beg," because we don't have anything else to give you. And so it's very difficult. And we are the people that are holding their hands, that are praying with them, because we don't have anything to give. And so I come from such a town of people that work incredibly hard and in places where they can't afford housing, even with the wages they're making. They can't afford um, 
to feed their kids. Um, our church has started um, feeding children during the summer because when they're not in school, they don't get fed. 80 to 95% of the kids in my town require um, reduced or free lunch at school because they qualify. So I absolutely stand for one of those towns. We are struggling. We have very, very few resources, and this budget will dramatically impact we're already struggling, and I fear it will really shatter us. So I ask you to keep that in mind, and thank you for lifting up the towns that you are concerned about, because we want to be heard and we want to be recognized. Thank you. Thank you. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. This is some of the testimony at a public hearing today at the State House on, the gov- on Governor LePage's proposed 2018-2019 budget. Public hearings continue for the rest of this week and into next week. His budget includes cuts to several programs and services. Good morning, Senator Hamper, Representative Gatine, members of the Committee on Appropriations and Financial Affairs. Senator Brakey, Representative Hymanson, and committees of the Committee on Health and Human Services. My name is Dick Moore, and I live in Central Maine. I am speaking today in opposition to the budget because it would take away food assistance and TANF benefits from those with felony drug convictions for life. I also oppose eliminating the general assistance program across the board for everyone. A little over four years ago, um, I was released from the Department of Corrections with very little to my name. In the state of Maine, in some cases, you're released with $50 gate money and a bus ticket. And at the county jail level, it is even worse. They open the door. Let you out, wish you the best, and say to you, try not to come back again. People wonder why our recidivism rate is so high in the state. And at the national level, the reason is systemic. The system doesn't give people who reintegrate into society the support and resources to provide them a fighting chance at success. Since the deinstitutionalization of psychiatric institutions in the late 1970s, our jails and prisons have become a warehouse for the mentally ill and people who abuse substances. The reason why these issues are so important so important to me is because I don't want to see anybody else go through the trials and tribulations that I did. Today, I work for an incredible organization. Not only believes people deserve second chances, but highest people like myself. Also, in the fall of 2017, I will complete my bachelor's in sociology and then hopefully go on and attain my master's in social work. were not in place, if I had nowhere to turn, no food or shelter, more than likely, I would have resorted to illegal activity and possibly ended back in prison. It's no surprise that people resort to criminal activity to put food in their mouth when they're cut off from resources or stigmatized by their fellow men and women. I don't understand what the governor is thinking when he says this will save money for taxpayers. If people can't access public assistance, they're put into survival mode. So many don't have any so many don't have anywhere else to turn, no family, no help. With no hope, they possibly will have to resort to criminal activity to survive. This could possibly end them back up end them up incarcerated again, and that only cost the taxpayers more money. If we cut general assistance as a whole, this would put people in the streets. In turn, this will increase the homeless population. This will put even more stress on the 
already underfunded and strained programs. The state of Utah uses the housing first model, which has reduced homelessness by 91% and reduced family homelessness by 10% since, uh, since 2005. I wrote a big paper on this in school, and we should take a lesson from these kinds of efforts. Please don't prevent people with felony drug convictions from accessing services that literally keep them out of prison. And please don't eliminate general assistance, one of the best programs we have of fighting homelessness and getting people back on their feet that may have to offer. Thank you. Questions? Uh, oh, that's right. I'm sorry, Madigan and then Parker. Mr. Moran, thank you. Thanks for coming here today to testify. Um, first of all, as a former person, well, as a person with a BA in sociology, and a master's in social work in my study, I say keep going because the professionals are people like you. Um, so I just want to offer that encouragement. And thank you for mentioning Housing First Learning, which is an awesome program that's at Calgary Talk. Incredibly. Honestly, I just want to thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. I was wondering if I could ask you a specific question on housing since you did all that work and research. Um, and can you just give us a brief summary of key points to why you think that program has been so successful and what, what it looks like from a bird's eye view? From my understanding, um, the state government in Utah um, builds like efficiencies, inexpensive, well, I wouldn't say inexpensive, but they're efficiencies, they're basic um, living situations, they provide case management, they provide, you know, um, therapy if needed, they provide substance misuse, you know, um, counseling, and they get people back into the workforce. Um, and the recidivism rate, I believe, in Utah. Don't quote me on this, I could be wrong. I, I believe is under 10% in regards to this, you know, model. Would you be willing, and also would you be able to produce numbers from that study for us that cite the effective rate of um, people returning to workforce? I provided in, in my speech on the back page the reference where I got this from. Okay. So it, it has everything in there. Thank you. Well, I want to echo Representative Madigan in thanking you for your hopefully the helpful information, also your courage. You use a term that I really use a lot too, is systemic, that we need to look at things in a systemic perspective. One thing you have a better handle on that I don't really have a good understanding of is that the challenges for someone trying to seek work when they have a felony conviction. Is that something you could speak to a little bit, maybe from your experience or from your studies? Absolutely. Um, so I got out in January 2013 um, for three months. I was almost stayed in the shelter in Portland, stayed in my car, couldn't find a job, couldn't find a rent. Um, Finally, this agency based out of Augusta, who has a satellite office in Portland, gave me a chance. Um, and it wasn't, I hate to say it, it wasn't because of my work experience or education. It was because I knew somebody. Um, and I think that's the only reason why I got back into the field. Um, and then I've gone from there to working for great agency now, they're statewide, and I love what I do. I, I do peer supports in what they call the behavioral health home, and, um, you know, I, I relate to people to who have been where I've been. Um, yeah, it was, and then they were in between, you know, trying to further my career in this field. I got hired at jobs, big name agencies, too, that, you know, preach about second chances and redemption, but when it came time to put their money where their mouth is, they weren't able to do that. Um, it's like I've served my time, 
but it feels like at times I'm living a life sentence. Um, if you look at the model in Norway and their correctional system compared to ours, it's totally different. And their recidivism rate nationwide is under 10% because when you go into their correctional facilities on the outside, it looks like a prison. But when you go in, it's all about therapy, it's all about vocation. Um, their prisons are set up like ours are, they're wooden doors, they're not steel sliders. Um, it's more of a, a welcoming environment. You know, there's so many more resources there. Also, when they go back into their communities, they don't send people who have criminal backgrounds like I believe the United States does over here. For my committee members, we've got probably 60 people waiting to speak. Okay? Anybody else? Thank you, Dick. Thank you Senator Hamper, Representative Gatine, Senator Brakey, Representative Hudson, members of the Joint Standing Committees on Appropriations and Financial Affairs and Health and Human Services. My name is Sue Sharon. I am the Social Services Director for the City of Lewiston, and I am providing testimony on the Governor's FY 2018-2019 Biennial General Fund Budget. I'm just going to mention briefly um, certain sections of, of the governor's budget and then focus primarily on the uh, repeal of the general assistance program. The city is neither for nor against parts EEE and FFF, but cautions the committees that any reduction or elimination in DHHS benefits has the potential of shifting the cost to the municipalities. The city opposes Part GGG because it has the potential of causing an extended period of unnecessary emotional distress and financial, financial instability for persons with legitimate disability claims. It also has the potential of shifting the cost to the municipalities. The city is opposed to Part ZZZ. Repealing the general assistance program is not a viable option. The consequences are twofold. Families will be at risk for evictions and foreclosures, and they will be forced to choose between heat, necessary medications, and food. Local taxpayers will see an increase in social and medical expenditures, ultimately impacting the state taxpayers. All municipalities, especially the service center communities, will see an increase in people requesting emergency services. Repealing the program will only exasperate the already existing social and economic issues. GA recipients are your family members, your neighbors, and your co-workers who have fallen upon hard times because of unforeseen circumstances. There is no other program that will assist with basic necessities while these families and individuals are pending disability insurance, workers' compensation, or Social Security. The GA program is a very small piece of the HHS budget and an even smaller piece of the total state budget, yet it plays a critical role. The state needs to be a partner in assisting its neediest residents. The state needs to be part of the solution. The City of Wilson implores the committees to consider the devastating consequences of repealing the GA program and urges the committees to consider the potential cost shifts that these proposals will have on the municipalities. Thank you. Thank you. Let's continue. Thank you, Michelle, for being here today. Sure. Do you know off the top of your head, or can you bring that to the work session, the number of people that would be impacted in Lewiston if, if GA was eliminated and the financial impact that it would have on the, the municipal budget? Sure. Anyone else? Seeing none. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's do that. It's going to be five right now. So. Good morning, Senator Hanfire, Representative Fatim, and members of the Joint Standing Committee on Appropriations and Financial Affairs, Senator Breaking, Representative Heimanson, and members of the Joint Standing Committee on Health and Human Services. My name is Fatim Hussain. I live in Abraham with my husband and my eight children, speaking of growing the population of the state of Maine. Um, two of them two colleges, one at Georgetown University and one at Swarton College. I'm the executive director and the founder of Immigrant Resource Center of Maine, which is the only culturally and linguistically uh, domestic violence and sexual assault service provider in the state of Maine. Therefore, we uh, serve immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers who are the victims of sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, and dating violence. 
I'm here today to speak on behalf of the ethnic community-based organizations in the cities of Portland, Lewiston, and Auburn in the position of the government's proposed budget. The ethnic community-based organizations collectively provide a range of culturally and industrially specialized services for the state's refugee, immigrant, asylum seeker populations. In addition, we hire from these communities, thus providing employment opportunities while contributing, supporting, and building the economy of our state. The populations we serve are very vulnerable, have experienced the worst atrocities a human being can experience, including genocide, and they bring with them historical trauma. Regardless of our experience, the majority of us start over. We go to work, attend school, volunteer, and become part of the collective community. We embrace our second chance in life. We're eager to go to work. We're eager to fit in. We're eager to live a normal life where we don't have to worry about whether or not we will fit, make it every day. We come from a war-torn or unsafe countries, and America welcomed us and promised to provide opportunities where we can thrive, recover, believe, and begin to trust again, again that we, we deserve to live. Many of our clients access the various services threatened by the government's budget cuts. Without this critical source of income and services, many of these families will become homeless and possibly face other implications, such as reports of neglecting their children due, due to homelessness in HSC. Additionally, our workforce will be affected as a result of their family members directly affected by the proposed budget cuts. Our communities will be, once again, faced with the uncertainty of our future and the future of our children. We oppose the proposed budget cuts. We oppose the dismantling of families and communities. We oppose the uncertainty that is being forced upon communities we serve. The state of Maine needs refugees, immigrants, and asylum seeker populations. We're part of Maine's future. We need to invest in these communities. We need to build on the economic foundation that the ethnic community-based organizations are providing right now. We need to collectively create opportunities that provide economic development that promotes self-sufficiency and economic independence. Um, in the Vendorso Center, the main immigrants and refugee services, main community education, Djibouti community, community financial literacy, Rwanda Association of Maine, Lahore Association of Maine, in her presence, Iraqi Community Association of Maine, Congolese Community of Maine, Maine Access Immigrant Network, Somali Bantu Community University of Maine, New Maine's Public Health Initiative, All Nations Outreach, and the Burundi Community Association. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm your host, Amy Brown. This is some of the testimony at public hearings that are taking place all this weekend next at the State House on Governor LePage's proposed 2018-2019 budget, which includes cuts to several programs and services. Hello, members of the Joint Standing Committee on Appropriations and Financial Affairs and um, the Joint Standing Committee on Health and Human Services. My name is Doug Bergfeld. I am from Gardner, Maine. I have a small business there. My thanks to the chairs of both committees for the opportunity and the members for the opportunity to speak today. I am here to stand in opposition to the provisions of the budget that reduce family main care eligibility, eliminate main care for 19 and 20 year olds, repeal temporary coverage for main care, eliminate general assistance and cut food assistance. I stand in opposition because we get a lot of talk from the governor and some legislators that Maine should be run like a business. I you know about business. And business is sometimes about cutting out things that don't make a profit. Right? Even if those things are valued by my customers, sometimes I have to cut them because right, I'm not making a profit on those things. It can be cutthroat, and I need to focus on the outcomes. Right? And I need to focus on being first and the fastest Right? if I'm going to survive as a business. Um, but I propose that we should not approach the state budget like a business, but we should approach the state budget the way I approach my family budget. We should be running it like a family. In the family budget, our priorities are to feed the children, 
the parents, the cousins, the brothers, the sisters, the grandparents, and to provide a secure roof over their heads. It's to keep them healthy. It's to make sure they get an education and treat them with the respect and care that our families, and extended beyond our families, to our neighbors largely, that they deserve. To provide a safe zone for all these people we care about, whether related or just our friends, so they can learn to support themselves if they are unable, and when they are no longer to support themselves after they have supported themselves for years and years. My family budget does not demand justification, does not distribute food based on my children and family members' performance. I do not ask my neighbor to take a drug test before I help him with his yard. I don't ask them to justify why they need my help. I simply know they need the help and provide that help. I also do not divide my family members or my neighbors into categories of deserving family members and neighbors and non-deserving family members and community friends. Nor, right, nor should Dean's governor, nor should his appointees, nor should this body enact laws and policies that do just that, create classes, create excuses, create technical reasons to divide people as deserving and undeserving. If we believe someone needs care, we should give it. Maine is organized, as you well know, in the towns and cities and also a state. But Maine is really none of those things as a core, at its core. Maine is people, people who live in communities. All Maine people are part of a big family. And as one main family, I ask our leaders to prioritize this budget around the people who need the community's help the most, just like I do for my family and no doubt you do for yours. It is true that not everyone is responsible, and there are some people who do take unfair advantage. So let's lead by example. Let me leaders show its citizens that we keep and help and support our neighbors and communities. Let us show that example by rejecting these harmful and, I don't know if I mentioned, needless cuts. And, if you get a chance, expanding Medicaid. We should be looking for more ways to help, not seeking ways to turn our backs on those who need us. I urge you to reject these cuts. Thank you very much. Thank you, Doug. Senator Hamper, Representative Gatteen, and members of the Committee on Appropriations and Financial Affairs. Senator Brakey, Representative Hymanson, and members of the Committee of Health and Human Services. My name is Maureen Boston. I am a native of York and currently live in Cumberland. I am employed by Pine Tree Legal Assistance as the statewide intake manager. I am speaking today in opposition to the proposal in part ZZZ to eliminate the general assistance program. I've been to share the expertise of Pine Tree Legal on these issues, I'm speaking today on behalf of Pine Tree. Since 1967, Pine Tree Legal has provided free legal services to low-income people throughout Maine. In 2016, we provided legal services to Maine families and individuals in over 6,500 cases, 542 of which involve public benefits, including general assistance. I'll remind you, you're on a three-minute clock. Yes, thank okay. you. We oppose the budget proposal to eliminate the general assistance program because elimination of this program will further weaken the already fragile safety net available to Mainers. Um, to get to the, a few important points, the general assistance statute is strict. It is the, has the most strict eligibility of any program in Maine. It is not a program, program of excess, and the money is needed for emergency needs. The strictness means that it is both well-regulated and going to Mainers with extreme needs. There are income rules, there are workfare requirements, you have to use all of the resources before you're eligible for general assistance, and there are strict rules about fraud and strict enforcement of those rules. In 2016, Pine Tree Legal handled 1,967 eviction cases, 90% of which we estimate are non-payment cases. We all know homelessness is expensive. Um, if you, if these individuals who we represent who 
are unable to pay their rent have very few free, few resources. And at this point, general assistance is one of the only resources available to help with rent. If you have no income and you are not a single parent, you're very unlikely to qualify for any other resources other than general assistance. If general assistance money is cut, this means that small business landlord, landlords will lose income. Um, in addition, children under five um, some of Maine's poorest demographic. They have no control over their parents' income. Um, Two-parent income households are often not eligible for TANF, and GA is the only resource. So those children will be harmed by this proposal. So I understand, Pine Tree provides services statewide. It isn't just located in the in the summer center. So when you talk about these problems that you see, they're not focused on just certain communities. These are statewide problems. That's correct. The eviction numbers that I um, put forward represent cases from York District Court to Madawaska District Court. Okay. And does Pine do like a annual report or have information that would show the distribution of these cases across the state? Um, we I, we can definitely get those numbers to you if that would be helpful. That might be helpful for the work. Thank you. Yes, Okay, Thank you for the work session. Uh, can you please, um, if you would, bring us more information on uh, you, you talked reference childhood poverty and some of the correlations with that childhood poverty. Um, the, the trend line in Maine over, say, five year or ten year period, and, and, and to the extent we're able to establish correlations with program uh, cuts or yeah, anything you can give us to just help us understand that better. Sure. I think, I mean, if we were to provide information, it would be secondary from us. We can gather Sure. Sure. Thank you very much. So, Jorgensen, thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Um, you said you handled 1,967 eviction cases. Most of them were for non-payment of rent. Yes. So, what happens in those cases? So, somebody gets evicted, they haven't paid their rent. It sounds like it's a sort of a closed case kind of thing. Um, so, what's the outcome? The, I don't have set statistics for you today, but the majority of cases that we handle, we do settle. So that's either being in court and working with a landlord's lawyer or with the landlord directly if they're unrepresented. Um, the, a couple of the most frequent ways in which we settle cases would be to agree on a move-out date um, or to agree on a payment plan. Um, and so either we're agreeing by, by statute that there's the minimum amount of time a person has to move after they're evicted is seven days. Um, we sometimes, landlords are willing to give them a little extra time, which we're able to negotiate. Or if there's a, a back, the back rent um, arranged for a way for it to be paid. Um, often the people that we see and enter into payment agreements for have had some sort of financial emergency in their lives, whether it's job loss or unintended expenses or occasionally administrative issues with benefits that they've lost temporarily, but will get back. And so we're able to come to an agreement with the landlord about when the payments will So oftentimes the, the client ends up still housed. Is that right? Um, I'm, I'm just interested in understanding the disposition. That, sure, that's our goal. Um, I mean, there, in resources like general assistance help us reach that goal. Because Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Any others? Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Mona Ishmael? I'm a member of these committees. My name is Mona Small. I live in Lewiston. I'm originally from Djibouti, and I'm at Asani here in Maine. Asylum, as I understand, it means protection and shelter for harm. I left my country because I feared for the safety of my children and myself. The decision to flee was a very hard one to make. I had to leave my husband and my family. Some in my family I may never see them again, especially now with the uncertainty at the national level. I want to still believe that here in the United States, I will be treated like a human being who has full right and dignity. When I arrived here in Maine, it was because of general assistance, telephone food assistance, that I was able to get on my feet and start to make a better life. Without temporary assistance, my life would be very different than it is now. I should have would have found ourselves in the family shelter or sleeping in chair on the bus station as many do 
when they first arrived. I wouldn't have learned English from the planet so quickly if we didn't have chapter of food. If there, if there is a beautiful dream of safety and freedom, that many immigration holds, that many immigrants hold, sorry, this is my dream too. I have my associate degree in international business and I plan to return to school this fall. My dream is to open a small business like so many immigrants before me. There are service missing for women in my community. I want to open a business that caters to their needs. There will be a store for traditional clothing, a hair salon, and exercise space just for women. There are many others women who come with dreams like this and readiness to work hard to promote them. All good outcomes take an investment. Man has invested in me and I'm grateful. Now I work as a part-time interpreter at Lewiston Hospitals and as a cultural broker for Lewiston Pediatric Associates. My husband was able to join me here. It's an amazing gift to have our family reunited. I have a beautiful eight-month-old and three other children who are children here. They see themselves as American kids. My older son told me one day, I wasn't born here. I wasn't born here, so I can't be president. But my little brothers can be. And I already believe in this possibility. My kids are the future of me. This is their country and, their, and this is their state. Today I'm able to support myself and my children, but I tell you, this wouldn't have been possible without the support of GA, Telef, and Assistance. This support helps us feel safe and enable us to recover from the suffering of our past. I know that if this benefit are interrupted, many other many mothers and children will be left homeless and hungry. Please do not bar asylum seekers and other immigrant groups from realizing their full humanity and potential here. Wait on three minutes. Well done. <laughs> Public hearings on Governor LePage's proposed budget will continue over the next few weeks. You can read the budget and find links to your legislator at legislature.maine.gov. And shifting gears now, first, uh, Standing Rock, as many of you may be aware, the water defenders there at one of the encampments were given a deadline of 2 p.m. Mountain Time today to leave that encampment, but some have vowed to stay and continue to resist the Dakota Access Pipeline. As of the time we went to air, 4 o'clock Eastern Time, which is 2 o'clock Mountain Time, uh, there had not been any arrests. At about 4.10, the Lakota Law Project reported that from their live feed that uh, they had been warned that anyone who was still there was subject to arrest. Uh, we've been watching several different uh, pages that are doing live feeds and skipping back and forth as some of them are uh, not functioning any longer. And so far, it does not appear that any arrests have been happening. We'll post links to where you can watch some of those live feeds on the WERU Facebook page. And again, shifting gears just real quickly before we wrap up, uh, there were John Greenman is here. He's reporting back from protests that took place in three cities in Maine. He was at the one in Bangor today. Uh, John's usually, we're in different seats than we usually are. John Greenman is usually engineering the program. We're kind of in different spots today. But uh, welcome to the other seat, John. Well, thank you. <laughs> so what was going on? Well, uh, as you said, there were three locations. It was Bangor, Lewiston, and Portland that the uh, Mainers for Accountable Leadership had organized um, town hall meetings without Susan Collins because they couldn't get a town hall meeting with her. So they wanted to have their own town hall meeting. And um, as a result of those uh, gatherings... Uh, um, in Bangor, at uh, the Bangor Public Library, the group gathered about 75 people to have their own little town hall meeting outside the library, and questions were asked publicly that would have been asked at the town hall. They had prepared them and, and gathered them from uh, many people who had their Facebook pages. Um, so those questions were asked publicly. Meanwhile, to show what this new world is like, it's sort of strange. We live in interesting times, but the same organization had on its page the fact that there was going to be another group meeting at Maine Public where Susan Collins was going to have her live call-in show. So those people gathered at Maine Public's Bangor Studios, about 75 people, and um, they chanted, chanted uh, we want a town hall. They got all organized. And finally, Susan Collins arrived, and I was able to ask her uh, to comment about today's announcement from Amnesty International that uh, the whole confrontational aura in the in the world the us versus them feeling 
in internationally is the worst that it's been since the 1930s. So I asked her that question, and you can barely hear her answer, but here, here's what she said. It's, it's, it's really, really too hard to hear, but um, she, was, she was game to, to try to answer the question despite all the chanting in the background, and then she went inside and did her live show. It sounds like what she said is she's concerned about our relationship with our allies. Yes, that's basically the answer. That's <laughs> what the answer about, was. about like an us versus them kind of thing. Right. And then just real quickly, the, it was announced at that meeting and the meeting at uh, Bangor Public Library that there will be a gathering in front of Representative Poliquin's second district offices in Bangor on Main Street tomorrow at 12.30 to have another confrontation or an attempt to have a town hall meeting. And the similar protests today, or um, whatever, the protests or, or public town hall meetings were held in Lewiston and Portland as well. That's correct, and I don't know how those went, but I assume they were quite similar, except that Susan Collins was here, not there. Right. All right. So the uh, group that organized it, we're, we're running out of time here, but real quickly, uh, Mainers... Well, Mainers for Accountable Leadership is one of the groups that's, uh, that's, uh, had, that is organizing these things. There are other groups. There's, uh, there's Indivisible, the Indivisible groups. Uh, there are Move On groups that are... That, and that's one of the things that's happening. These are interesting times. There's not a lot of coordination. However, nationally, Move On and Indivisible is coordinating. They're both coordinating and doing things together. So more of that can happen and be probably more effective. All right. Well, if you're listening out there from any of those groups and you want to keep us in the loop about what you're doing, you can always email us at news at weru.org. Thanks, John Greenman. You're welcome. And that is Main Currents for today. Main Currents is independent local news, views, and culture. You can catch us here on Wednesday afternoons at 4 o'clock. Like I said, you can send story ideas to news at weru.org. It's our pledge drive next week. So if you support independent media, want to keep this kind of thing going, remember us next week during pledge drive. And you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org, where Democracy Now! is coming up next, followed by Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg. I'm Amy Brown. Thanks for listening, and keep it tuned here to your community radio station. Support for WERU 